0: Welcome to episode 71 of The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Ruben Ratting. Ruben and I met at one of Patrice Helmar's Marble Hill Camera Club meetings, and you could tell right away from Ruben's talk that he had an interesting life experience. Uh, You just got that vibe from him, and that really does play out in this episode. But before we get to that, let me say that this episode is sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media program chaired by Charles Traub. So Ruben's path to photography can be traced through his love of music. He dropped out of high school to play music and to be with a community that got him away from his abusive father. Uh, music brought him to New York City in the early 90s where he played at the Knitting Factory, for those of you who remember the Knitting Factory and that would eventually lead to his love of photographing in New York. Uh, there were times when Reuben even tried to break up with music by pursuing writing, but he would always come back to music. Even now, Reuben judges his photographic compositions the way he would a musical composition, by how well it organically all comes together. We talk about all of this, including how Reuben ended up writing for porn magazines and testing software for Microsoft, both of which are jobs he appreciates for where they took him next. So currently, Ruben is working towards an MFA in interdisciplinary arts at Goddard College in Vermont. Uh, He's shot quite a bit of assignment work for various publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Out Magazine, uh, Huffington Post, Hyperallergic, Gothamist, NPR, and most recently, the New York Times published his work entitled Humans Against Music, which is this fabulous series of karaoke pictures at a bar called Freddy's in Brooklyn. And you can see that work on Ruben's website website RubenRatting.com, which i've linked to on the show page all right before we get to the episode let me just remind everyone that i am the juror for the raw exhibition at the noise arts garage in atlantic city and that deadline is coming up in a week's time uh, also uh, the juror's choice awardee will be a guest on the show during the live recording at the reception I also want to announce that I'll be doing a live show at Apex Art on July 17th at 7 o'clock. My guest will be Stephen Rand, the founder and executive director, uh, along with some staff members. And I think we're going to have a really great conversation about the history and the mission of Apex Art, including its very unique fellowship program, which I think speaks to Stephen's really interesting perspective on what the function of art is. And this will all be part of our conversation on July 17th. So check that out and RSVP on the link at realphotoshow.com. So here are some events that I have been invited to through the great and powerful Facebook. On July 12th, Candela Books and Gallery in Richmond, Virginia, is having a book signing and a conversation with artist Shane Rochelieu from 6 to 8 p.m. Also on July 12th from 7 to 10 p.m., the Bronx Documentary Center, located in the Bronx, is having its first ever Latin American photo festival. Uh, the festival will bring award winning photographers from throughout the Caribbean and Latin America to exhibit their photographs, create installations, and hold workshops and panel discussions. On July 14th, Rola Chayat with Apex Art will be conducting a studio walking tour titled Alternative Photo Processes in Brooklyn from 2 to 4 p.m. I should also mention that Rola is responsible for me having a live show at Apex Art and her show Light in Wartime will still be up during my live recording at Apex Art. But this walking tour with Rola on July 14th will involve visiting four artists who are pushing the boundaries of alternative photographic processes. Uh, they will meet the artists in in their studios and talk about their methods and discuss their work. So my last three events are also from the Bronx Documentary Center, Apex Art with Rola, and Candela Books and Gallery, because they invite me to everything, and I love them for that. If you want to have your event right out on the show, please invite me through Facebook at Real Photo Show. Uh, So the Bronx Documentary Center is also having a block party on July 21st to celebrate the first Latin American Photo Festival, and that is from 2 to 6 p.m. On July 21st, Rola and Apex Art will host a film screening called Artists Respond to Gaza, and that is at the Mayday Space in Brooklyn. And on July 28th, Candela Books and Gallery is holding its Unbound 7 Fundraising Gala event from 7 to 11 p.m. in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, This is all part of their open call show called Unbound. So that's a lot to remember through audio form, but all of those events are on Facebook, so you can find them there. So my guest again is Ruben Radding, And just one last note about the show. We do spend a decent amount of time talking about how to stay positive, both as a student and a working photographer. And I really thought that was a, a good part of the conversation. All right, everyone. Well, enjoy the show, and we will talk soon.
1: nerd you are
0: not just an audio nerd you're also a musician uh-huh yeah so uh, well why don't we why don't we just jump into it How did you go from musician to photographer and why
1: I' well I'm still both <laughs> Oh okay um, uh, I, I, I will admit that I don't think about music uh, with the same kind of um, obsession that I used to uh, as photography has taken over a lot of that. About seven uh, years
0: now photography more yeah. like 10 Oh wow yeah okay. yeah uh,
1: the first few I wouldn't describe as terribly serious, but uh, I definitely it was a, a definite decision when yeah. I when I took it on, but it was also a decision that maybe it was okay for the first time in my life to have a hobby because uh-huh. uh, you know when you're a musician, for most musicians I know, you are combining your your love, your passion with in many cases, something vocational. For some, it never is a vocation. But for myself and most of my working musician friends, it was this total life experience of, you know, it's your obsession artistically, it's your, it's a lifestyle, it's who you hang out with. It's, you know, it's a collaborative art. So even if you uh, didn't really even think you needed community, you're gonna have it. So for me, uh, anything that I ever got interested in, even outside of music, I, I operated in much the same way. When I was uh, in my late 20s, I got really obsessed with being a writer, and I worked very hard at it. And for a while, it was this thing I sort of did in secret, but it was I was very uh, very committed and, and very uh, passionate about it. And eventually, I decided, as I had with music and other things, that I had to quit everything else in my life and just make time for only that, which, you know, on the good side uh, means that you devote an incredible amount of energy and intention and, you know, study to something and practice. The downside is uh, it puts all this pressure on it of like, now, now I have to, you know, well, if I'm not going to do anything else, I have to make a living at this. <laughs> and um, that pressure, uh, while having its benefits, would often like take all the fun out of things. And so then I got back into music later uh, full time and experienced the downside of that, you know, of like, oh, now I got to get gigs. I got to (laughs) be out there. I've got to do this. I got to practice. I've got, you know, everything. So when I got interested in photography, I thought maybe this would be the one thing I don't do that with. Maybe, oh. I, maybe
0: I could just... Will you let go of some of the anxiety about making a living and wh- what the future is going to be? Yeah, to not
1: put that pressure on it and to, to see it as something I could have to make my life broader and I could still, you know, enjoy and learn but not have to make it my be-all and end-all. So for the first few years, uh, I was barely even, you know, letting anyone know that I was doing it. And uh definitely didn't indicate to anyone that I had any uh you know aspiration about it and i honestly don't think i started off with a particularly large amount of talent <laughs> i i really i started to wonder if that was true whether that was a story i've been telling myself for 10 years and then recently Did you go i go back and look <laughs> yeah i i uh i mean i regularly visit fairly old work but right. um not too long ago i was trying to find this one picture, not because I suspected it was good, but because it it had a picture of something I wanted to remember or whatever. And so I was going back through work from when I first, you know, bought a camera and it was really deep to look at because I don't see the presence of talent at all. Like, you know, I mean, I teach now and I, I, I regularly look at people's work who are really green and stuff. And I see more talent in most of that stuff than I see in this like first two years of of what I was doing. It was really awful. But I remember... What would would you have told yourself as a teacher? Well, I mean, now, having had that experience, I would say something very different than I might have, you know, not so long ago. Right. But I mean, what I try to imagine is what would someone else have said to me uh, if they saw that at the time, I mean, they might have said, well, maybe, you know, you have a pretty good music career. Maybe you should just (laughs) stick with that, you know, or, you know, uh, maybe you should try drawing or, you know, something. Yeah, I'm hoping people don't still do that today,
0: (laughs) unless unless something is awfully wrong, like that person is suffering so much that, you know, or something like that. I'm not sure, but, you know, having taught at a community college now for 13 years, Mm. uh, I've I would never, you know. I I know what I, I know what I have. I have students in their first two years of college. There's no way for me to know what their fourth year in college is going to be
1: you, like. You only know what they are now. Yeah, you don't know what they're becoming, and that's the most important thing. And and it's and that goes way beyond photography. I mean, I've talked to people who had really uh, crazy political beliefs or whatever, mm. and you just think, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with this person? But you don't know what they're going to be five years from now. No. You know, they could have a complete turnaround uh, spiritually, politically, or uh, artistically. And in in my case, what I think I would do now if I was looking at that work is to focus on what are they interested in. Not about the photography. That's it's it. not like yep. the making of a picture. Because anybody can learn that. I've proved it. You know, if I could learn <laughs> to do better. We've all proved better, it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think I still have a really long way to go. But I, yeah. I think... I I mean, it's really demonstrable to me that I've improved dramatically and it took a long time Mm -hmm. and it's all been worth it. But what's really fascinating to me when I look at my really terrible early work is I was interested in the same things I'm interested in now. And I've learned a lot simply from diving deeper and deeper into that interest. And it has very little to do with the picture. Mm -hmm. However, a lot of what I've learned leads me to the better picture because I now see the picture as its own entity. Before it was just, there's this subject matter, there's this This world, there's these objects. Absolutely, and for me, most of that was New York City. And that has never left me. But I mean, my idea of what a good picture was Uh, I mean, I don't know if I even knew, like it was, it was, I just knew that I wasn't doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I want to get into, (laughs) you know,
0: the way you learned photography and all that, but, but just getting back a little bit to, so being a writer, being a musician and a photographer, all creative outputs, maybe even writing has more in common with photography in some ways because it is a bit more solitary, um, Hmm. right. Where music, music can be very solitary when you're practicing and studying and learning, but you, you need you do need collaboration, maybe. I don't know. It's a little bit of both. But you, you've spoken about improvisation mm. in music and photography. Do you see sure. the influence of writing in your
1: photography? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the obvious part is what you just mentioned about the solitary nature of, of, you know, certainly a big aspect of it. But for me, the the connection is especially found, say, in poetry, where the poet gives you this text to read but the visualization and the sensual experience is all in your mind, right? And I see photographs very much the same way. When I show you a picture of something happening, some strange event or uh, whatever it is, there is so much that happens in your imagination in your head that fills in gaps because photographs are absolutely a, a reduction, right? You have this 360 degree world with sight, sound, smell, everything, we reduce it down to a rectangle facing only one direction. And uh, in my case, you even take the color away. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're stopping time, we're stopping sound, taste, smell, and, you know, reducing down to this crazy small dimension. You know, a line of a poem that evokes so much experience of uh, all those same senses is also a massive reduction. And that fascinates me. And I think that's what continues to really drive my understanding of what i'm doing with photography is that it's about what happens in your mind when you look at the picture and i'm you too like i'm also hopefully as a, a observer of my own work like that's how i can judge whether the photograph's really successful whether it's really singing is that it makes my mind do that too of like looking at what's in the picture and imagining like what is going on here you know, or what happened right after this? What happened right before this? You know, like all these things that might be coming together in the picture. And then, you know, in the case of the, the, my use of black and white, it's like that's a further reduction and that leaves all this room for your imagination. You know, you don't need to see that that tablecloth was red in, my, in the way that I'm trying to work. Yeah. And um, you're a bassist? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: And you said you're still playing.
1: Yeah. Um, How? When? Not, where? Not yeah. nearly as much as I used to. Uh-huh. Not uh, depending on it, and I, I'm not feeling uh, super driven about pursuing it. But I, I've one thing I learned also from my experience of driving all the fun out of things with my <laughs> careerism is uh, that I don't need to quit things so much to to make room for. For other stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I, when I did start to take photography a lot more seriously and start to take jobs doing it and, and uh, you know, take classes and so on, I had that same temptation of like, maybe I should just sell all my instruments and quit music. But I I looked back on my life and was like, God, I've done a lot of tearing down, you know, a lot of dismantling my life in order to move on to something else and grow. And I thought maybe maybe I don't need to do that. And so now uh, I'm still available as a musician. I still get asked to play. Lately- A session player? um, I do a lot of subbing in people's groups. So I'm not necessarily the steady player in somebody's band, but I get called a lot to fill in when other people can't make it. Like uh four or five times a year I might play with the the Balkan brass band Slavic Soul Party when they can't find a tuba player for that <laughs> week. And uh it's it's such a joy because I, I get to always be the hero. You know, you 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 get a certain amount of uh, uh, hero heroism just for being able to show up right. and, <laughs> and get and get through it with no yes. rehearsal. And you know, <laughs> I have I have a lifetime of gig skills. I've been I've been a performing musician since I was fifteen years old. Mm which led to my first tearing down of things because I quit school at 16 oh. and just was all about the music. And um, so, you know, you can throw me into a lot of different situations musically and I can cope. That was 10th grade? Yeah, I, I never even finished <laughs> the 10th grade. Oh, wow. Uh, well, technically, I never even finished the ninth grade, but that's a long story. <laughs> okay. But um, Well, what happened in school? <laughs> I hated it. It was miserable. <laughs> Uh, I, I Pub- public school. Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, and you know what they said was uh, actually a really good school. Supposedly, uh, you know, n- not uh, not an impoverished school or or, or neighborhood. This was uh, this north- in DC, in, in Northern Virginia near DC. It was uh, you know by all uh, by all measures a perfectly fine environment, but I just really hated it. And I, I had a miserable home life too, my crazy violent father and, and uh, you know, I was just really miserable wherever I went. And the only solace I found was with uh, the music and the musicians, you know, it was where I first found real community. You know, that that can't be uh, emphasized enough that that, that kind of saved my life. You know, so I'm really glad that I found that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, my last year in high school, I went uh, half the year to this uh, alternative public school. It was sort of in our town. It was thought of as like the 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 school for hippies and nerds, and uh, I was somewhere in between. I was, you know, <laughs> punk rocker, and all of my friends were photo students. You know, they all we, that school had a photo lab complete mm-hmm. with dark room and this really great uh, young teacher who really cared about teenagers and really cared about photography and really um, empowered the students. And, and um, I never took his class. Oh. Uh, yeah. But he's a friend now. He's a great photographer in Washington, D.C. named Lloyd Wolfe. And Lloyd is just a, a radically uh, beautiful human being who really uh, helped a lot of lot of young people. Hmm. And he helped me in the sense that I was surrounded by all these people who were doing photography and doing it, you know, the old way. We, we, digital wasn't around yet anyway. And I, uh, I would hang around with with them and, you know, hang out in the dark room sometimes, and I experienced the magic and the smell and all that. <laughs> but I thought, well, that's for other people. But when I look back, I realized, you know, they had community too, even though they were shooting by themselves, you know, doing a lot of solitary work. Sometimes they're printing alone, whatever. But... I mean, they had a crew, they had a, a community of their own and, and um, you know, they hung out in the lab and it was it was a, a, a beautiful thing. But I, uh, I was in the musician community and that was incredible. And I was always working with people who were older than me. Uh, and that was part of what made me so sure that I could just leave school because I was Uh, taking advantage of the fact that, you know, the the guys I was in bands with and stuff, most of them were older, they had cars, they had something resembling real lives and I could kind of glom onto that being this kid. You know, I mean, at the time I felt way more grown up. Uh, you know, I look back at, I look at a 16 year old now and I go, I was that? Right. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, and going and touring around the South in cars and, and playing these bars and stuff, you know, at 16, 17 years old. But it, that was the life I wanted, you know, mm. there was just no way I was not going to go after it. And especially since being at home was miserable and being in school was Well, you, you mentioned that you're, you, know, you're, you had an abusive father, Oh but yeah. W- what about your mother? which well, she was. Did you have support? She, she there? was very afraid. You know, yeah. like I got along well with her, but uh, you know, she she was a very stuck person, and uh, was also an artist. She had been an opera singer, and she stopped that around the time I was born. And I think she just felt very uh, defeated, very negative, and and uh, very afraid, and so you know it's taken me a long time to really understand what would have made someone stay in that situation he wasn't violent to her only to my sister and i you know i um it's taken me a long time to to see my parents as as human beings with faults mm-hmm. rather than the monsters who failed me right. you know i i can identify a lot with both of their struggles do you speak to your father uh, my parents are both dead oh okay um for quite some time now um mm-hmm. uh, and uh You know, it's interesting. I was just uh, reflecting uh, last night talking to my wife about uh, my father was a peculiar man. He was, uh, I've come to understand he was probably Aspergian. He had very strange ideas about life and very rigid practices about how to get through that life. And he was really good at one thing, which was he played the violin and he did it uh, professionally. And He was great at that and really bad at almost everything else. Uh, He was really good at cleaning. He could clean the house like nobody's business and, you know, mow the lawn. And, you know, his clothing was impeccable and, you know, very, you know, a lot of rigidity. But anyhow, he he was always really baffled by the things that I – cared about and and did and, and you know my music that he was aware of for years and years he just saw it as a, a bunch of nonsense and fooling around with my friends because it wasn't the sort of professional oh. life that he knew as a musician being in the the sort of establishment world of the orchestra so, so you get this sort of
0: music gene from your parents and and no appreciation for it at the, at yeah the same not time. so much yeah, yeah
1: but that changed when I after several years after I moved to New York, when I started playing on people's records, and I would get these CDs, uh, and I'd send them home to my dad, and that actually impressed him because, mm. you know, products impressed him, uniforms impressed him. The most impressed he ever was with me was when I took a day job uh, when I was living on the West Coast, uh, working for Microsoft, because that was a big name, mm. you know. So he he was impressed with you know, uh, symbols of legitimacy like that. So when I started sending him CDs I played on, he was like, wow, look at, wow, you know, Uh. that really impressed him. And so I was thinking, you know, I've had a few recent successes with photography where I think he would actually have been somewhat impressed, maybe not with the work itself. I don't think he would have had any reference point to understand what I'm doing, but that wouldn't have mattered so much. And it's funny because I know people who get a lot more support from parents or or, or or loved ones who maybe they're the people I know are frustrated because they don't get it, and I'm like, you know, I don't know if getting it is so important. Right. It's nice. It'd be nice if they you know could really converse with you about it, but uh, you know, isn't what we really want just the support? You know, you take yeah. w- take whatever you can get. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, did did either of them? live to see you become a photographer or, oh, no, or do photography no, oh, okay no. Yeah.
1: no not at all not at all mm-hmm. and that's fine yeah uh, you know m- when my mother passed i was only about 24 oh okay. so there's immense amounts of my life she never saw it and my father, uh, I think he's been gone about 14 years now. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot he never saw either. Right. You know. So now for the scary question.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you see any of them in you? Things you have to fight and avoid? And- oh, all the
1: time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, from my father, I got a certain volatility that I've really had to face. Mm-hmm. And have faced it in stages. You know, at first it was... You know ways to to keep from uh, completely screwing up my life every minute. To you know, okay, in certain situations, I'm still very uh, you know volatile and so on. And and um, uh, in my mother's case, you know, I inherited all sorts of uh, uh tendency to you know medicate myself with food mm-hmm. or to you know uh, be fearful, to check out, to um mm. you know uh, uh to uh, be negative. That's the biggest one. I mean, she was very fatalistic. Uh, you know if i if I came home and said oh i uh I got in the school play she 'd say, "Oh, I hope a sandbag doesn 't fall on you yeah. and i mean it was she was very uh fearful, yeah, and I inherited my own version of that, you know and i I still battle with that but i i 'm trying more and more to replace the negative narratives with positive ones because neither one is true mm. right it 's all in my head right if I think Oh, I'll never get to, you know, okay, I've done pretty good so far, but I'll never get to be, you know, whatever, like, you know, I'll never get a MacArthur grant or something like that. You know, that's absolutely my imagination, right? I don't have any way to know, pro or con, yes or no, whether any of that's going to happen or not. But likewise, if I say, you know, maybe I'll get a MacArthur someday. Like that's also just you as valid, know, right? right? You still don't know. <laughs> right. So I'm trying to take that pretty seriously and go. You know, it's a lot more fun and more empowering to live with the positive mm-hmm. narratives or the positive uh, future imaginations than than with the negative ones. And it's absolutely my choice. Mm. So if it's up, if I have the choice, right? You know, why not make it? Plus, also, can you even really work towards a goal
0: like that, or do you do you really just? do the work right <laughs> well yeah it's not
1: up to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know the, the the you can take positive action mm-hmm. that's it right and then what happens is very often different from what you uh, dreamed of but is great and i'm all for that like uh, when i started getting really serious about photography I, I started to meet a lot of people who had actually gone to school for it uh, a lot of people went to art school or went to j school and uh, i couldn't believe how many of them were bitter uh, bitter about their job prospects or bitter about the gallery scene or bitter about whatever and i noticed that in all, in most of their cases the problem wasn't that life is difficult because you know that's true for most people that i know but what i noticed was they all had very very specific ideas about what success was supposed to look like not just get in galleries but in like a a few specific ones in Chelsea or if they were journalists, you know, like to get, to shoot for this or that magazine or be a, you know, with this or that wire service or whatever, instead of just moving forward with their photography and finding where they could fit in. And sometimes I think those overly specific ideas about what it's supposed to be uh, just breed a lot of bitterness. You know, if I was just absolutely hell-bent on, I got to get in one of these two or three galleries in Chelsea. Well, even for a lot of really talented, amazing people, that doesn't happen. So then what are you left with? What, you don't get to have a enjoyable life in photography because right. you didn't get into, you know, whichever <laughs> right, damn gallery one still isn't going to sell your work? Didn't get the recognition you wanted, so... It yeah, was all for nothing. It can't depend on that, and right. because I've already been through thirty-five years of relatively uncommercial music in my life, right. I can tell you there is another way, <laughs> and it's got. You got to find the reward in the day to day, and so you know. Of course, I would like some of the things that these people talk about, but I. It's can't be my focus and it can't be limited to those specific outcomes absolutely Uh, absolutely not you know and and guess what there's a much bigger world out there that could be rewarding i mean some of the situations i've found myself in teaching were like things that even if you had told me they existed and i didn't know they existed um, I might have ruled them out in my consciousness thinking, well, but that's not really what I had in mind, you know. But nothing's been what I had in mind. When I first got so, you know, so-called serious about photography, the the people I looked up to and thought of as like, well, that's what I would hope to do. That wasn't what I turned out to do at all, you know. And I'm fine with it because what I have turned out to do is much more true to my real nature and my real um, – well, the, the things I think I have to let's offer. Let's fill in the the gap a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. When did – what what happened between dropping out of school, going on the road,
1: playing music, and then uh, getting interested in photography? Oh, boy. Okay. So <laughs> a lot of stuff. So, um, so when I was 21, I moved to New York City. And that was a huge change uh, for all the reasons one can imagine. And it was the late 80s. So New York was a really... Scary and exciting place still yeah um, it's still exciting to me, but it's a lot less, less scary, scary. <laughs> yeah and um the, you know, I was coming from the uh you know plush suburbs of washington d c and I'd spent my last year there living in d c in a you know somewhat rough neighborhood, and I was a cab driver and stuff but but coming to New York was like really blowing the lid off of any facade that uh, I was in the uh, comfortable uh uh, safe world i 'd grown up in and uh, and it was electrifying and i I always remember how you know all the times that I came to New York to visit before I moved here and then even after I moved here for quite some time i just couldn 't get over how every time I walked out my door, it was like I was in a movie. Hmm. there were all these uh, surprising things happening in front of me and 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 all these challenges and and uh, and questions, you know, things that would really make me wonder. And, and that had been really missing from my life. And I, I really grooved on that. And I still kind of groove on it. Uh, you know, when I travel to other places, it's, it's never quite the same. Even really exotic places, I enjoy them. And then when I come home, I'm just blown away yet again about the, the, all the random surprises this city has to offer. Even with all the changes and the gentrification and the you know, preponderance of chain stores or whatever else, yeah. there's something about life here still. That's different. So coming here was a big deal. And I started trying to play music here. And for a while, it was a little difficult to get things going. And then eventually... Clubs on the
0: Lower East Side?
1: uh, That would have been great. Uh I was going to them, but I was having a hard time putting together some steady... Project you know, I had grown up being in in rock bands, you know it was a very it was a collective effort, and you had to you know, I had my group of friends around who were my compatriots and moving to a new place. I didn't quite know how to put that together took a while, and eventually i um wandered accidentally into what now is referred to as the downtown scene hmm. uh, that centered around the knitting factory, and uh, I discovered improvisation in music, which I'd always loved but didn't have. Uh, any awareness that there were people who dedicated themselves to that. The early bands I was in, we would write material by improvising. Rock musicians will call it jamming or whatever, but we didn't jam in the sense that we didn't just sort of set up a riff and then you know, repeat it a lot and so on. We might, but our focus was to sort of pick up our instruments and just come out with something that sounded like a song Mm -hmm. spontaneously. And we would even sing spontaneous gibberish lyrics to sort of you know, make a place for for that part of the function, and then then we'd go back and refine it. Say what we you know, we liked this, we didn't like that, and sort of fix it up, and that would become a new song for us. Well, then when I was uh, I'd been in New York for a little while, I I became friends with this drummer who sort of introduced me to the fact that there were people in New York and in fact around the world who who just do that, who just play improvised music. And I just thought, wow, sign me up, that, I'm, <laughs> I, I can't wait to try. And it, you know, I, I found that it was uh, beyond my wildest dreams in a way, because it was, um, it was a community, it was always fresh, you know, there was always something different happening. The, the you weren't locked into uh, these um, tribes of of bands. There were steady projects, but there were also all these opportunities to just kind of get up with people you'd never played with before and and do it publicly. You know, a real performance. Did you ever play at the Knitting Factory? Oh yeah, many, many, many times. Ah. I, at both the one that was on when the, I started going, the it was, old
0: knit before it was the old knit, right? On Houston.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah Houston, yeah. Mulberry. Uh, yeah. There many times, and then uh, when they opened the place on Leonard Street, right? Uh, for there was this wonderful period of about six months where uh, both. Were open. Um, the, they yes. had given up the upstairs at the Houston Street one, but they still had the bar downstairs. Yeah, and they were having people do like weekly stands down there, and I, I was in some of those and and went there constantly. I may mean, have seen you. I used it, to go yeah.
0: there quite a bit with friends of mine. Yeah, yeah. it's possible. In the, uh, early late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> well,
1: I started. I started hanging out there in probably about 91, Mm -hmm. something like that. And so then, yeah, a couple years later, uh, the Leonard Street Place opened. I started playing there too. I think I was only there... A handful of times mm-hmm. after they moved, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there was definitely something special about the the Houston Street space. Uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't nice. No, <laughs> no, it was but, it was the most
0: uncomfortable place to see music. <laughs> but we went because we loved it. Great yeah. things happened there. There yes. was an
1: incredible energy, and and <laughs> and uh, what an amazing community. You know, I mean, uh, I learned so much. I was such a kid. You know, I mean, uh, what twenty five or something when I started we're, we're not uh, yeah. that different in age I'll be 51 in a few days I'm 51 now oh know. there we go yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah we're peers in that way and I um yeah so anyway I lived at the time on Canal and Lafayette and I would I would just go back and forth between the two nits during that six months that was an amazing time and mm. there were other places then too uh the cooler on the west side and you know a bunch of other bunch of other places where we got to play uh but the, the surely the center of, of activity then for my community was the knit. There was the the Blue Note
0: by NYU, wasn't there? Am I got or did I have that wrong? Oh, the Village. Um, well, the Village Vanguard. Village Vanguard. Yeah, that yeah, 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 was yeah, maybe
1: yeah. more like the you know the jazz yes. scene. Yeah. Now there's a little more crossover between the scenes. Right. At the time, we really felt like, uh, well, the Vanguard is cool, but you know we kind of got our own. Uh, world that we're inhabiting yeah. down here that the eclecticism of of the downtown scene really appealed to me because by that time in my life, I had gotten over or I was enjoying getting over the feeling that well, I like a huge number of different kinds of music, but i'm a rock and roll guy mm-hmm. you know like feeling like I was segregated off into this uh one world where like you know since I was a teenager I'd been listening to jazz, but I thought of that as something that that's something other people. Can do that's not my thing, and it was around that time that I started realizing, like, well, if I have talent and I'm willing to work to learn, I could you know play any of these things. And being a bass player, I was super fortunate because people would constantly ask me to do things that I wasn't really qualified for, and I'd say, Well, I don't really know that much about that music, and they'd say, Oh, you'll be fine, just show up, <laughs> you know, because somebody always needed a bass player so bad. <laughs> That they'd let me try anything, you know. <laughs> and by the third or fourth time that they asked me, I'd started to get the hang of it, you know. So that's how I started playing a lot of different kinds of music that I previously would have been petrified to even uh, yeah. think of trying, you so know. So then when does uh, photography start to play into this? Oh, years later. So, you yeah. know, what hap- I'll skip ahead a little bit. You know, I had, a um, you know, the period I talked about, about trying to write. I, I stopped playing music for a few years to make room for that and discovered that you know some things never really leave you you know i was still constantly thinking in music i was uh. Uh, anytime i heard music i heard it in a way that you you know you can't turn back the clock and change your awareness back to what it was before you did something so deeply so eventually the bug caught me again and and i i also just really had uh no idea how to find community without it. It was really humbling to find out when I, I was living out west and and was just wondering like, oh, how do people find community when they don't have this common endeavor? And, but people seem to have it. So I, I was that was a, a real point of maturation I had to go through was. Mm. Uh, you know, learning about well, who am I without this thing? But I came back to it, and then that led me to come back to New York, and that was uh, right after nine eleven. You were out west during nine eleven. Yeah, yeah. Or? I was okay. in Seattle. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and that is
0: that where you started shooting or
1: no? Oh, oh. Okay. I still didn't
0: sh- start shooting yet. Oh, so so was, you were out there for music.
1: I was out there trying to break my addiction to New York City oh. and to music. Oh. I was trying to not play music when I got to Seattle. And then. That's when you were writing? Yeah. 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 Okay. And then. What were you doing all this time for a living? Was it uh, gigs? Well, when I. So before I got to Seattle, I lived in Missoula, Montana for most of a year. Oh. I had this idea that I might go to school there. They have a pretty cool writing program at the university of Montana. And, uh, several of my favorite writers had been from Western Montana and written about it a lot. And it just sounded so great. So I went there sight unseen. I just basically mailed myself to Missoula. No high school degree. Nope. No. I mean, I had a GED, uh, Uh, no high school degree, just showed up, you know, 29 years old and, uh, got an apartment in downtown Missoula. And, uh, uh, I loved that place deeply, but it was really hard to get by. I was, you know, working in a coffee coffee shop, pulling espresso shots, and uh, I was actually writing writing pornography for uh, a magazine back in New York. Screw? What was it? No, no. Oh. I had friends who worked at Screw. Uh, I was writing, you know, those letters columns where somebody said, I can't believe this happened to the me. The Penthouse Forum? Things like that, right. But I was. it was for this magazine, uh, High Society. Oh, High Society. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and I had another, f- I had a friend who worked at the magazine Genesis and I, I wrote a, uh, I wrote like some entertainment These were the more them, fringy, raunchier magazines, weren't they? Yeah, well, you know what always would happen is like uh, people who had like edgy taste but wanted to do something really cool and great would sometimes get hired at these magazines Mm. in editorial positions and they would try to get you know, much more interesting things to happen at them for a minute. And then after about a year, they'd get canned and, uh-huh. you know, the the fun would be over. So, you know, I got to write a couple of entertainment things for for Genesis. And then, uh, but the high society gig was just pure porn. Uh-huh. Uh, it was, you know, like you'd write this 3,000 word letter uh, where you used up every imaginable sex act and and, uh, and euphemism you could think of. And uh, it was a great writing challenge because, especially after the first couple I did, they changed the format of the column to be, instead of one long letter, it was two letters half that length, right? (laughs) So it was like two 1,500-word letters. And you had to make the voices of the letters. They're they're both first person. You oh, had to make, you had to okay. make them both right. really different right. so that it wouldn't appear that the same person had written them because <laughs> these are passed off as being real letters from right. readers. Correspondence. Yeah, and occasionally they did, I think, post real letters, but most of the time it was people like me writing them. So that was a deep challenge because if you didn't make the voices different enough, they'd can one of the stories and just pay you half. Oh, wow. And I was depending on this money to pay my measly right. rent in Missoula. So uh, that was actually a really... Great but frustrating challenge, and the job got really boring for me soon after that. You know, it's just it becomes drudgery. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I made a living doing that, and then in Seattle, I it's I, the opposite of what people are imagining when they're reading it. It's oh like yeah, someone
0: just miserable writing this. Going yeah, off. you picture someone
1: having a really saucy life, right? And, and I was sitting alone in the in the public library in Missoula, like you know, trying to think of another yes. word for a Looking body up part. Up new words, right? Yeah, I, I tried to do a little research at one point. Uh, you know, it was like I need to expand my vocabulary. <laughs> But anyhow, then, when I moved to Seattle, because uh, it was just a little too hard to make it in a small mountain town, and I figured out that I wasn't going to be going to the University of Montana anytime soon, in Seattle, I wandered into the world of uh, software testing. Oh, and was this the Microsoft job? Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, I did another little job before that, but then i I finagled my way into Microsoft when it was back in the day where you could still get into certain technical jobs with very little technical knowledge if you displayed the right kind of mind that's largely changed i believe mm. but at the time it was sort of the very end of of when you know you could come in and just show like you're really smart and that would be good enough for certain they were looking for those positions yeah untapped so, surprise resources yeah and, uh, i remember yeah. i had uh, i had three long interviews and you know you go up the chain when you interview and so my final interview was with the, like the test manager for the whole entertainment group at Microsoft and I remember him saying at the end of it, you know, you have no knowledge at all of formal procedure, but everything else you're saying is really great. So we're <laughs> gonna give you a chance. And I was like, <laughs> <gasps> couldn't believe it. And um, so I spent a few years doing that and uh, and found a, you know, something I actually kind of had a talent for, but I really did not have anything like the technical knowledge that my coworkers had. But I did have a really good instinct for how systems work. Which I swear I got from music, you know, from having to trace down, okay, no sound is coming out of this amplifier. Why? And learning how to trace down, you know, where the problem is. And software to me worked the same way. It was just virtual instead of being uh, hardware. Right. And so, okay, something here is not working. How do we? Figure out the steps to reproduce that, so that some developer can look at it and fix the the code that I don't understand. (laughs) And uh, that was that was great. Now all of that kind of stuff is done with automation and 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 uh, scripts and robots and stuff. And so there isn't really uh, a need for what I used to do so much, or so they think. I (laughs) I think it's still really useful, (laughs) but I also really didn't want that life. Um, That's what
0: I was going to ask. Did you
1: leave them, or they leave you? It was a little of both at first. I. I definitely wanted to leave and plan to leave. And then it was also around that time that the, uh, the, the situation of the perma temp was ending. You know, I had been there as right. a contractor. If I worked extra hours, as we all did, I got overtime. It was pretty nice. And then, uh, there were these lawsuits going on that a lot of permanent contractors were lobbying to, to get benefits and a lot of other things that they should get. Uh, so of course a lot of corporations solution to that was, okay, well, you're going to get fired (laughs) or you can apply to be a permanent employee, which in my case would have meant taking a pay cut and having to really confront, is this something I want to keep doing? I worked around a lot of people who had interest in doing creative things and put it on hold for a decade or more. And some of them were retiring relatively young and going, okay, well now I get to do my thing. And I just, just, I never wanted to wait. I've never wanted to wait since I was a kid. That's why I quit school. Yep. That's why I've done hit the road. Yeah. Right. That's why I hit the road. That's why I moved out West. That's why I moved back from out West. Like I'm never interested in waiting. I want to just get right to it. So I, so I left Microsoft and then, you know, within a couple of years of that, I moved back to New York to, to get back into the music scene here. And that was right after 9-11. I had gotten married out West. So it felt like, you know, big new chapter of my life. Uh, And it was, you know, it was a little difficult rebuilding things here, but, you know, it came together. But then uh, I guess it was about six years after that, my marriage was ending. I was turning, I had just turned 40. There were a bunch of things going on and I started feeling a constant interest in taking pictures. I can't exactly say why. Uh, It wasn't an interest in photography uh, in the larger sense. It wasn't like I was out looking at photo books or exhibitions or, you know, looking at photos in magazines or anything. And you didn't have any like, photographers in mind? No, or anything, right? no, not at all. I didn't really know names of very many photographers at all. Uh, just the ones that, you know, the general public might know, uh, which weren't relevant to what I was interested in either. You know, I didn't give a shit about uh, Ansel Adams, you know. But, uh, but I was interested in my world and the ways that that it amused me and excited me you know how many times had i watched something happen in front of me in new york city on the subway or the street and wanted to tell people about it later but the telling just didn't quite make it you know seeing that guy dragging that air conditioner down the street using a fan as a sled to put it on that just that (laughs) does that's not the same as seeing it and just being like what the heck is that so um i just really wanted to take pictures of uh, of my world and bought a camera, and then, you know, quickly ran into all the problems I had ever had trying to take a picture before that, which is you see something, you're excited about it, you take the picture, and the picture doesn't have it. <laughs> Just doesn't convey what you were excited about. Mm-hmm. It, it exists in the frame. There's still that guy dragging that air conditioner yeah. or whatever, and it doesn't say what you hoped it would say. Or these things that were visible to you that your mind was filtering out are suddenly painfully visible you know uh you know the gee those power lines uh, they didn't look like they were going to get in the way or that thing didn't seem like it was going to be growing out of that person's head or it didn't feel like i was so far away right oh, yeah, yeah, yeah right i didn't think i was so <laughs> far away that's a big one right it is yeah and it that is. that increases so yeah so i started to r- realize okay so i'm not good at this but I got good at things I didn't used to be good at. So this has to be learnable. So after enough frustration or uh, success that was really minor, <laughs> uh, I, I started thinking, okay, well, so I should you know, study this somehow. And at first it was just buying books, finding out, uh, le- first of all, learning about other photographers because I didn't know any. And it was somewhere deep into that that I saw uh, I can't remember now whether it was Cartier-Bresson or Winogrand or or uh, Elliott Erwitt or somebody where somebody uh, described them as a street photographer, and I thought, oh well, that's what I that's what I'm doing, <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a good sounding term, and and it describes what I do. That's cool to know, and I had no idea that there was you know a whole lot of people who thought that's what they did, and but they it seemed like a lot of them had already known about it as a thing, and then aspired to do it. And I'm not trying to describe myself as you know so pure or anything, but it really did come from the interest in the street first, and then wanting to make better pictures. But then even my idea of what a good picture was would eventually change right. a lot. So yeah, so I think you started teaching yourself then, or reading books. Yeah, or, at first yeah. that, and and then I was uh, I was working at a uh, an, an agency, a digital agency. Uh, and right about the time I got that job, I signed up for this this little class at the 92nd Street Y when they started a facility down in Tribeca. Mm-hmm. And uh, this wonderful guy, uh, Palmer Davis, was was teaching. And he was just so positive and so encouraging. And I was really lucky that the people at my job, they let me take off uh, off like an extra long lunch period once a week to go to this class. Uh, I I couldn't believe they let me. They they (laughs) paid me a salary and would let me go to this class. It had nothing to do with their business. But, you know, I don't know how much exactly I learned in that class, but it was a place to have to show up weekly and show somebody what I was doing. Well, community, but... But also the 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 sense of a, a deadline mm-hmm. and and of having to think a little bit more uh, intentionally about what I was doing, not just to wander and react, but to say, okay, we've been asked to do a, a very loose assignment of some kind, and having to to show up for that. That was really uh, a great experience. Yeah, and, and just,
0: there's a there's a rigor to this, just like anything else you're serious about. Right. Yeah,
1: well, to, yeah, to anything that that really makes a difference. And and so that was a, a first step into it. And then later, I took a, a class at ICP. where I, I thought, okay, now I'm really getting serious. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I didn't know what class to take. But there was there was one that professed to be about street photography. And I thought, well, since that's what I do, maybe I, you know, that would be a good fit. Although I suspected that there was probably a benefit to studying something outside of what I was already doing. But, uh, you know, whatever. I just went with the flow. So there I had the good fortune to to be in a class led by a guy named Baron Rockman. And Baron, I think some of the other students and and maybe even myself, were a little frustrated at times because he didn't restrict himself to talking about what we all thought was street photography. Uh And by that time, I had my own idea of what that meant. And I know everybody else in the room sure did because they were much more vocal than I was about... Where's Gary Winogrand? And and it's not that he wouldn't talk about Winogrand. It's Uh just that, you know, like I think much to his credit, he didn't seem to think it was as important to talk about the things that we we were all fearful about or, uh, you know, how to do it. It was more about like he spent a lot of time talking about composition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of us felt like, well, but how on earth could I possibly have the time to find a good composition of this moment that goes by in a heartbeat? But I did start to find that with those ideas in my head, I reacted instinctively to things on the street a little bit differently. Mm. It starts to evolve. You start to anticipate oh what's going to screw up my photograph here you know and you start reacting ahead of time <laughs> moving a little bit this way or that or seeing an opportunity in the design of the world in front of you and 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 trying at least to incorporate that into your your picture and then he also introduced us to a lot of photographers who I think a lot of people in the room and myself included didn't think of as street photographers, but they were really great and life changing to look at. You know, he he's the reason I uh, first found out about Eugene Richards, who became instantly one of my biggest heroes, not a street photographer by anyone's usual uh, conventional sense of the word, but certainly a spontaneous photographer of life and his way of seeing and composing uh, had a huge effect on me there were so many others like that and Barron also really uh, had he had done a lot of work professionally as a printer and so he really saw people's pictures in terms of how they could uh, be printed in order to emphasize or or deemphasize advantages and problems i think again a lot of us were sort of like why is he going on about the way you might print this but now years later i look back and i go wow you know he really was onto something and i use those thoughts today. Um, he was giving you the education you probably should have signed up for and mm-hmm. didn't think. To. Absolutely, right. absolutely. Yeah. And I had my frustrations. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm alluding to them here. And I, I, I ran into him uh, not long ago. I hadn't seen him in years, and uh, and uh, I told him how much uh, I'd gotten out of uh, being in his class at the time. And then later we were emailing, and he said. He said, "You know, I remembered you as being really unhappy," and, it, and he's absolutely right. I'm sure he has every right to to feel like I was actually really mad at him and and uh, and dissatisfied. But you know, the truth is that we don't just as we can't look at someone's work and know what they're going to be five years from now. Yeah, I couldn't look at what I was experiencing and know what it was going to mean to me. Yeah, I've seven had, years later, I've had students,
0: and you, you, maybe you have. A, I don't, I'm going to ask you about your teaching later, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, come back after completing their four year degree, like, oh, now I know why you kept bugging me about this or asking me that question or making me talk about this and all mm-hmm. those things.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's important to realize that it, even if they don't seem to get it in those four years or, or however long, it, it's going to stay with them on some level and might, might, uh, might uh, inspire them later. Yeah. You know, I mean... Baron spent a lot of time talking to us about dividing the frame, about the possibility of layers. You know, all these things were very exotic to me. And then trying to apply them to something as as spontaneous and lightning fast as as working on the street just seemed really uh, a tall order. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember him telling me to get closer. And I thought I was I already was getting really like for me based in you know like there's an economy of Of uh, closeness when you're shooting, like, you know, for what feels very close to you at one point in your life, when you start going beyond that, you realize, oh my gosh, I wasn't close at all. (laughs) And, you know, that still happens to me. I mean, it was like two years ago, I started shooting wider and getting closer yet Mm -hmm. again than I had been before. And it was, you know, it felt really insane at first. And now, if I shoot with a thirty-five and step back, I feel like I'm not even there. You know, like, like, yeah, it, I feel, mean, yeah, it, it feels, feels telephoto. like telephoto. Yeah, thirty-five yeah. feels a little bit telephoto to me now. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to happen because you know, for ages, you know, thirty-five felt a little loose. Yeah, and now twenty-eight feels really normal to me. <laughs> and uh, and I, I I tried shooting with a twenty-one, and I was like, okay, this is a little now loose. we're getting dui. Yeah, right? now <laughs> we're getting a little loose here, you know. But but you know that may change for a all 24 I Twenty-four
0: sounds like a sweet spot, right? Yeah, who knows?
1: <laughs> who knows? But I mean, for yeah. all I know, like when I reach my seventies, maybe I'll like just go to the 50 and be like, you know, this is beautiful. I just like, started shooting with a 40 uh-huh. and I love it. There's something I beautiful about it. the 40. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. I, there, there is something beautiful about it, mm-hmm. you know, but it doesn't matter. Like it's yeah. really like, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's all about what goes on inside you, you know, and, and how whatever you're choosing to work with, uh, works with that mm-hmm. you know shooting with a rangefinder it means having a certain kind of relationship with the camera and likewise if you're shooting with a you know an, an slr or a you know twin lens reflex or whatever like you're going to have a different relationship with the instrument Completely. and that's how i think of it is as an instrument yeah. you know my music background again just is constantly informing me anytime i have something going on with uh, photography whether it's technical or community or a- anything else like there's always a musical analogy to it that really helps me understand what I need to keep in the forefront of my, in sure. my values you and have that to, experience mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it's directly applicable and that shocks me all the time it really does like it, it when you're involved in a, in an art form you mostly see the differences between what you do and what other people do. You think, well, what could I have in common with a, a someone who composes symphonies? There's no no connection at all. Wait, but maybe there's the solitude. Maybe there's, you know, if only that. There's that, you know, and then maybe it's, you can also get into the fact that, you know, when you write that symphony, you start off with a certain imagination of what it's going to be like when it's done. And it doesn't, doesn't come out it that doesn't. way. Right. It comes <laughs> out different. Same with photography. You know, I, I, mean, I know people who are very careful planners of what they work on and, and they design things and they're still surprises. You know, there's still accidents, there's still beneficial uh, differences between what they imagine and what comes out. So sure. there's, even right there, there's another hmm. way that things connect. I, I noticed on your
0: your website you wrote that you were uh, um, working towards an MFA at Godard. Goddard, Goddard, yes, Goddard, Goddard College.
1: Did, did you complete that, or is, I it? have an, about another year to go. Oh, okay. Two, two semesters left. Yeah, it's uh-huh. so a five-semester well, program, and oh. I just finished my third.
0: Okay. Are you are you doing it sort of slowly, or you're you're doing it semester after semester straight through? I'm not taking any breaks. Oh, know, okay. except For summer break, which right? Is so I'm this is right very now. recent. Yeah. 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 It's a
1: huge change. I got in without a bachelor's degree, yeah. and uh, I'm uh, t- three fifths of the way through my
0: MFA. Wow. Yeah. So is that how is that experience is it what you expected is it challenging is it's
1: it... not what i expected when i first got the idea to go to grad school when i first got the idea I, I was i think imagining doing a much more sort of conventional uh mfa art program uh and specifically in photography and then uh the program that i'm wound up in at Goddard is uh, it's an MFA in interdisciplinary arts Mm -hmm. and there's so many things about that that are great for me might not be great for everyone but for me it's it's a perfect fit Partly because of all this background I have in in other things, which also helped me get in because uh, I was able to demonstrate that i 'd had this you know long artistic life with you know m- you know demonstrable achievements and you know long discography and so on, and then that I was able to connect that to my photographic life, which has already, which by that time had already also started to. You know, show some public, uh, I don't know, resonance or something. Right. You know, jobs and shows and jobs things. and shows. And yeah, stuff. yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I had a little bit of a CV. Right. So uh, uh, you know, so that that'll helped, and I had wonderful help from the program when the uh, the dean of the school was not so keen on me. The program kind of fought for me a little bit, huh. and so I was really fortunate. Um, but then that once, was all part of the application process and the interviews. Yeah, and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where and is Goddard? Goddard is in Plainfield, Vermont, which is near Montpelier, mm. and it's a low residency program. So I go up there for the first week of every semester. And meet with my cohort and my advisors and plan out what I'm going to be doing that semester. And uh, it's a, the residencies are a really, really fun, mm. rewarding experience. But it's really great that I don't have to live there all the time. I get to keep living in New York City. Because that, that, I mean, I didn't know a lot about schools when I started looking. Right. I didn't know what would be right for me. But I did know that I didn't want to leave New York, You know that New York was important to what I was doing. And that I didn't want to take any loans. I did oh, not want to. another okay. another source of bitterness from right. a lot of my friends who went to art school or J School was was they the know, debt. years of debt. Yes. And I was like, Okay, mm-hmm. I need to not do that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it'd be a very long story to explain how I found my way to uh, Goddard, but w- it was because I had followed a bunch of different paths and, and found out about this program at the Hartford Art School that's uh, uh, also a low-residency uh, but more uh, photo-specific program. It's a very interesting program. And uh, they said that I couldn't even apply because of not having a bachelor's degree. Oh, wow. Uh, state-run schools or or schools that are oh, you know, overseen by the state and They any want way, all the credentials. Uh, they, they are not willing to overlook prerequisites. So that was not going to be an option, but that got me thinking about the term low residency. And I thought, well, where have I heard of that before? And I remembered hearing about Goddard years ago, and so I, I was like, I don't even know what degrees they offer, you know? So I went and looked at it, and I saw this interdisciplinary arts degree, and I thought, well, maybe maybe that could work. And once I And Once I got in, I discovered it was the perfect place for me, because the best and worst thing about that program are the same thing, which is there's virtually no photo faculty at all. The reason that's the worst thing is, well, there's nobody there who teaches <laughs> photo. The, the best thing is, well, I don't really need that. I have amazing mentors here in New York City and I get to work them into my uh, study plans. It also means that I never have to face someone else's uh, photography orthodoxies. Right. You know, because a lot, another thing that I discover in the, the bitterness in, in many of my colleagues is that there was somebody at their school who told them there's a right way and it's this way or that it, there's it, to do it legit means you do it this way. You know, it means you got to shoot film or you got to do this or you got to do that. And I don't have anybody saying that to me. In fact, I have very much the opposite. The more self-styled, the more eclectic, the more outside the box I want to get, uh, the more validation I get from hmm. from my school. They'd probably be happier with me going farther outside the box than I even want to go. <laughs> right? You know,
0: is any of that work on your website? The work you're doing for uh, for your MFA?
1: Oh I, yeah, uh, it's it's all connected. I I, I don't. So uh, the so the work
0: that you're you currently do under your different sort of project names, that is all, also part of the work you're showing at yes, Goddard? Yes, I
1: have been encouraged by my advisors not to segregate my MFA work outside of all the other stuff I do in mm. photography. It's all combined in some way, uh, which absolutely suits my focus as a photographer, because it's not really about is it street or not. Mm-hmm. It's, for me, it's about what I Start off alluding to this thing of what goes on in your mind when you look at the picture and not being tied to narratives uh, or any sort of uh, allegiance to documentary truth or uh, or conceptualizing like in so much art photography it's really my love is work that is devoid of all of those things and leaves all this room in your imagination to question it and to have these questions in your mind be basically unanswerable. I don't care if they're answered. It's much more much more fun when they're not. You know, I think all of my best pictures really capitalize on that and the ones that don't, some of them are good pictures, but they they don't they don't excite me in the same way, you know. And so I have work that I do uh, shooting, say, you know, promo shots for other musicians. Or, I, like, one thing that's happened that's really changed for me, being in school, is I'm much more active photographing throughout my daily life. Yeah, and and not just when I see, you know, something that would be a subject of a street photograph, but even so- like, you know, going on a trip with my wife or or uh, being at the her family's place for the holidays or something. I'm constantly photographing in all areas of my life now, and all of that goes into my MFA work.
0: Well, you know, the um, the music work, I do want to talk about a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really some of the best music performance work I think I've ever seen. Wow, thanks. Yeah, it's really fantastic. And what I love is its alter ego, humans against music, which uh, <laughs> I yes. love. I, I think those two pair so nicely. Uh, you have these, you know, these, these serious professional and intense musicians playing, and you have these very serious people singing karaoke, which I think is great.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's it's funny, again, how it's not about designing what uh, what kind of thing you think you're supposed to be doing and setting out for that. I didn't start shooting karaoke as a project. Uh, it was just where I wanted to be because the woman I was interested in, in uh, having a relationship with uh, hosted this karaoke series... <laughs> And I thought she was great, and uh, the, the bar where it happens is someplace I felt good about, too, and knew about already. And I just started going, and by that time, I'd found that, you know, in any situation, I'd rather be photographing than not. So I would take pictures, and then she and I started dating, and then eventually we moved in together, and now we're married. But, oh, you okay. know, uh, so I've been shooting... Uh, the Humans Against Music Karaoke Series for four years now, twice a month. I might have missed two uh, or three nights ever in those four years. Is that your title, or is that the title of this performance? The series, the the karaoke night, uh-huh. uh, which happens twice a month at Freddie's Bar in Brooklyn, is called Humans Against Music. One uh, one of the two times a month that they they call it Karaoke Grand Prix, but it's <laughs> it's pretty much all under the the auspices of Humans Against Music, which was started about 14 years ago by a group of of people at Freddy's. What a great name. Yeah, (laughs) well, everything about it is great. But, um, you know, I really didn't think of it as a project. And then it was maybe, I I don't know, a couple years ago, I was talking to, uh, well, at that time, right before grad school, I was talking to a lot of mentors about my whole problem with projects, that it seemed like that was the measure of photographers was projects, whether they were conceptual or documentary, whatever the hell they were, everyone had a project. And I just hadn't tended to do that. My interest was in this other thing that actually uh, discouraged theme. Uh, Themes seemed to diminish my pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, Captions diminished my pictures. Everything that, that could make what I did more easy to talk about and sell diminished it. So I was really frustrated, didn't know what to do. I was asking people like Gene Richards. I was asking people like um, Alex Webb and Rebecca Norris Webb and you know, all these people like, what do I do? Everyone had their own ideas. The, the thing that was actually pretty helpful was I, I was talking to Larry Fink. And he said, well, maybe you're already doing a project and you don't even know it. And I thought, what does he know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's such a, um, a guru thing to say. <laughs> yeah, but a, but guru because he's wise. Right. And because he's probably experienced the same thing at times too, where you're just doing all this work and you don't know, you can't necessarily know yet what it's for. And sometimes there are people who do their best work by setting out to do something and then be open to change. Yes. And then yes. other people like myself, I think, need to just accidentally find out that they are doing a project. Since I discovered that Humans Against Music was a project for me, I started to notice other things in my life that one might view as a project if you segregated them out. There's a part of me, though, that still is a little bit uh, resistant to thinking of the Humans Against Music thing as really being... Uh, really, as typically me as the other work that I do for one reason, which is I remember about a year and a half ago when I started to really uh, absorb the idea that this could be a project. I I did a first edit of the work and I looked at it and I went, "Uh oh, this this isn't right." Because mostly what I had was what looked like performance footage. It's 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 all pictures of people s- singing. Uh, on a mic with no indication in the pictures themselves of what made this special, what made it even karaoke. There's no projector, bouncing ball or anything. It's just people standing there with a microphone and I love them and I think some of the pictures are good, but it didn't tell you the story and the context. So I started shooting the room more, started shooting the relationships between people more, all of that. This is absolutely what it needed and it's what makes it interesting to anyone. In a sense I feel a little bit sad about it because I don't want to be beholden to documentary truth. And it it still kind of isn't, but it feels a little bit of a compromise to me to be that documentary. And I used to not really know what the difference would be between documentary and what I was doing. And now I understand it. It's like as soon as I need pictures to say something about a truth. Trying to fill in facts. Yes. Then I have somehow, to me, wandered a little bit away from what I... Uh, feel the most excited about. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm not an idiot. There's there's <laughs> something really special about that that uh, that series and 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 my personal connection to it, which is why anybody else has started to care about it as a photo series. I um, you know, I had a, a small edit of that work in the New York Times Lens blog last week and in the Sunday paper this weekend, and I know for a fact that the reason the guys at the Times were interested in publishing it was because of my personal connection to the subject and my musical background and how that interfaces in the story. And I like stories. I'm not, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I love documentary photography and and documentary truth and stories and all that. It's just not what I think of as my thing. But if there's anything I've learned from this whole experience is what what I think my thing is, uh, is not as relevant or important no. <laughs> as as what uh, what seems to get off the ground and and reach people like I'll take it. You know, yeah, it's fine. yeah there's if
0: if your work is going to get out there and it's going to be shown or seen or published, there's always going to be some collaboration of someone else's idea. Involved. Oh, yeah. Right. And,
1: it's, and, and as I said to uh, Jim Estrin, I said, you know, I don't mind a little uh, bit of angle and concept when it's actually organic to my life, mm-hmm. which this absolutely is. I mean, right. my personal connection to it is, is completely legit. And my musical background does have a, a, a place in that story. And I, I didn't strategize to have this project. It, it was just where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. you know and that's that's what i really that's what i do love about it you know is that it's it's still completely organic to me even though photographically there are ways in which it has to manifest that feel a little bit off my personal uh, manifesto yeah you know that's it's not such a big deal there's <laughs> still plenty of plenty of room for right. for the manifesto <laughs> thing to, to happen
0: so you and you also um, self-published a book apparitions yeah that? that was and that's is 2013? that mostly what you call your street work
1: no. no. Well, oh, no, you mean the book? The yeah, book. the book, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely was. That was, uh, I guess, about a year before that, people uh, who followed me on Facebook and stuff had, you know, and every comment they would leave on a photo, they would say, When's the book? You know, uh-huh. when do you got to do a book? <laughs> and I, I knew I didn't have the material for it. It was way too early. I was mm-hmm. really green, and, and I didn't want to be one of those people that just, you know, poops out a book when they barely learned how to take a picture. But, about a year later, I started to feel like you know I might have mm-hmm. enough to to do something for those people that already care right you know I did not something I had any illusion of finding an audience with or whatever, but I thought, well, if there's all these people who are clamoring for this thing, I'd be an idiot to not <laughs> uh, think about providing it now that I think i I have enough pictures and i so I just did this blurb book, I did a little you know uh, kickstarter thing and and did this blurb book, and you know it's it's not what I do now, but it's I'm not embarrassed by it at all. There's there's certain pictures in there I feel especially good about, and even the ones that are less strong I I think are pretty nice. Well,
0: I don't know if this is more recent street work or just sort of mixed in with you know your whole time doing street work. But one of the things that I find interesting about some of the work in on your site is, uh, and and I think it sort of distinguishes you a bit from a lot of other street work is your uh, ability and acceptance of uh, phenomena in the photographs the Mixing the weather and the transparency of material, and the mm-hmm. sort of giving everything this kind of a uh, um, flowing energy through the the use of playing with light and 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 different atmospheric effects, things like that. Did, did you mm. pay
1: attention to that? Do you have you seen that? <laughs> have you <laughs> thought about that? I I would probably recognize everything that you're saying. I don't know how much. I think about it. I think,
0: well, I think it also connects very much to the kind of body language you look for. Mm-hmm. There's a there is a kind of a, a dance in your photographs in the, the 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 form and the language, and I and I think it's flowing. And I think the again your use of light and atmosphere uh,
1: feeds that. Huh? Yeah, I think for me, hmm. how to put this? Obviously, like like any artist, I've gone through a certain evolution, right? You know, at first, you're just looking to get the the moment. And then you're looking to get this exact slice of the moment. And then you're looking to get that moment with this background or lack of distractions and so on and so on. You grow. And I think where I've grown to is this point where I'm very attentive to the moment, but also uh, very aware of the construction of an image, you know, filling the frame, you know, trying to, you know, make sure that the whole thing has, has a, an integrity, playing with visual possibilities that, you know, you might not naturally be attuned to see or focus on, but, you know, in the endeavor of photography, trying to work with that. So that's probably some of the things that you're picking up on. It's interesting. But where did the
0: title come from, Apparitions?
1: Apparitions. I think that came because I felt like I was starting to find a more, uh, for want of a better term, a, a slightly more surrealist, direction in the street work it's certainly not in all of the pictures in that book but there is in the most recent ones at that point there was this feeling of uh, of at least aspirationally and a little bit in reality of of looking at sort of an alternative world through my pictures rather than just here is a street scene in sunset park you know it's yeah. like there was something i was bringing to it with my perspective that felt a little bit like um it couldn't necessarily be verified you know, as real. And I was thinking about ghostliness and and things like that. And I just came up with the title Apparitions. And uh, I like short titles. I don't like <laughs> long verbiage or things that feel overly pretentious. And Apparitions was about as close to pretentious as I was comfortable <laughs> with. And it just felt good. It felt musically right, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's uh, still my definition of success is, is it does it feel musically correct Mm -hmm. and 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 uh hang together in an organic way it felt organic to me at the time right i don't place much importance on it or on the book in general It, it was uh i'm really glad i did it i learned an enormous amount mm-hmm. from doing it i uh, you know learning about the spread learning about the like making a form out of those photos you know more than just a, a short edit to show someone at a review or something like that but to, yeah. to make a thing out of it and it felt like like sequencing an album to me a, a record album or, mm. or a cd or uh chapters in a book uh, something like that, and the relationship of facing pages in the spread, or or having you know the occasional photo over the gutter, where you you know you just get the one image in the spread, or you know things like that, of where where the image sits on the page, is the caption there or is there a list at the end you know like all of these little things and it really affects how people see the work and so i learned a lot from that i look forward to using that again sometime making a a much better book (laughs) but um but again i'm not embarrassed by it right it's a pretty good pretty good thing i remember at the time there were a few older wiser photographers who were cautioning me against doing you know a a book that i might not be uh, ready for or whatever and i you know, I, I disagreed with them then. And I think I disagree with them now that, like, I wasn't doing anything that was going to harm my reputation years <laughs> a later. A permanent stain on your resume. Yeah, it's not like if you put out a really crappy book right. through Aperture or something where people would judge, the, judge you against that for years to okay. come or something. It's not like I was writing
0: like, penthouse forum letters.
1: <laughs> yeah, look what that did for me. Now it's, a, now it's a funny thing I get to talk about from my history, I, you know. It didn't didn't hurt me at all, no. you know. But I, I, you know, so I look back on that book and it's like, you know, uh, the worst thing ever is that I, I did a, a, a blur book that's pretty good, you know, and, and the people who... Uh, and you who, had an audience for it. Yeah. Right. That was the other thing was I looked at what kind of uh, photography Kickstarters had, had failed. And they were the ones where people were using it to try to get an audience. Mm-hmm. And I already had a certain amount of audience and I thought, well, this is just for them. And I, you know, my... Kickstarter thing was successful, and and everyone got the book, and people seemed pretty happy with it. And, uh, you know, it was gratifying, and and I learned. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I got no regrets. <laughs> you know, that was a good thing. But it was also, uh, you know, like most milestones, it was the precipice of a lot of change. Uh, my, my work started to really grow after that. And then again, a couple of years ago, right before grad school, I, I hit this point where I could really feel that mm-hmm. I was crossing a some sort of border within myself mm. uh, and and finding a different level of uh, of aspiration in it you know so, so uh, back to grad school yeah do you see, are you um, also
0: pursuing this for a for teaching very much yeah i mean that's what are you a, teaching now
1: well what i've been doing last few years i was doing a bunch of uh teaching online for this uh, new york institute of photography it's been around a long time mm-hmm. but also uh occasional uh, short workshops uh, i did a few at uh, nyu and and similarly to my grad program not being specifically a photo program one thing i really loved about the nyu uh, workshops I did was that they weren't in, they weren't in a photo department. They weren't in the journalism department. They weren't even in the art school. It was in the global media studies huh. uh, department. And and specifically in one case, the global media studies club, I think they call them. But anyhow, I loved it because I was working with people who were using photography and really wanted to understand how they could use it better, but they weren't stuck in the same kind of photo ambitions or assumptions you know they they weren't uh, thinking about how to, how to get a job with Reuters and they weren't thinking about how to make it in Chelsea. They mm-hmm. were like, I'm trying to say this thing that I've been studying anthropologically or you know, to explain what, to people about the skateboard culture yeah. or something. And I'm trying to use photos in this way and that way. And it, I just found it super gratifying. And they were really open-minded, mm-hmm. most, most not, certainly not all, but most of the students I worked with there just felt like, wow, I, how lucky... You know, that I'm not stuck in trying to explain things you could get anywhere. Right. You know, I get to really use who I am to help a little bit. And then I just last year started offering my own... Private workshops out of my studio. Oh, okay. And uh, did my first one last fall, and that's really gratifying too. Oh, nice. Yeah. It, people can find that uh, through following you on social media and your website. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, uh, um, I'm expecting to do another one this fall, probably September, but I need to figure out some timing of some travel yeah. stuff to to decide on the dates. But um, yeah, keep an keep an eye out on my my social media. I don't keep these things yeah. secret. <laughs> but I really love teaching because it really gives me a chance to get into the things I think are really important that I don't, I, I really like to talk about the why mm-hmm. and the, the, the individual, what, what's it about for you? Because I see a lot of, especially, you know, since digital has increased everyone's uh, ability to get involved in photography and, you know, reduced the barrier of entry. You, I see a lot of people trying to find out, you know, how can I make good pictures Thinking that there is some objective object, some objective goal that that is the same for all of us, and it's really not, yeah, you know, and it's not about format, it's not about anything to do with the 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 technical or the in many cases even craft it's a lot of it is about you understanding you and what's important to you and who you are and I feel like I can see that in people's work, and help them create a better relationship with photography. That might lead to better pictures. It might not, but it's certainly going to lead to some kind of growth. Right. And 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 uh, and it makes the photography mean more to you. You know. And that's what I care about. And And it it might
0: just give them a stepping off point, you know, where they'll take a new direction or they'll just start thinking about...
1: Or value the direction they're already in differently. You know, like I had a student last year who, uh, you know, I would advertised the workshop as, you know, not necessarily, you know, adhering to any particular version of what street would be, but that we were going to take spontaneous unposed pictures of people. And this woman who had signed up for the workshop right away when I announced it, she contacted me at one point and said, uh, is it okay that I, I don't take a lot of pictures of people and not sure that I want to? And I, I said, well, I mean, I'm happy if you stretch a little in this workshop, but, and that is sort of the focus, but <laughs> you know, just do what works for you. She was also very sheepish about the fact that she was shooting with an iPhone and i looked at the pictures she was taking and i thought well these look really good like who cares what you're shooting with it doesn't matter if it ma- if it doesn't matter it doesn't matter right so she did a fantastic job in the workshop and what i started to notice in her work right away was that while she might not be shooting people and she might not be very bold about you know going beyond her comfort zone she was really dedicated she really put the time and work in and she had the beginnings of a voice photographically there was a certain attention she had to unpeopled places and a certain uh, almost like the same way that some photographers have an empathy for the people in their in their photographs she had a sort of Almost empathetic feeling for spaces and and detritus and uh, just the mess of the city and and that mm. was much more than the sort of like you know environmental right. image of the street or something. It was, she was very specific in her interest. There was a kind of portraiture without people. In a way, work. I mean, it was sort of like like you know how how you think about William Eggleston, uh, his work that doesn't have people in it, and there's sort of this uh, sort of um, sense that these things that some would find ugly could be really beautiful, right. and emotional even. And she had a certain bit of that. So I encouraged her to go with that, to not try and do what others of us might be doing, but to recognize that she had something that was hers and to go with that. And, and I... Numerous times in my teaching, I I invoke the great words of of James Brown, who said, (laughs) you got to use what you got to get what you want. Now, he was talking about short pants, you know, talking about (laughs) hot pants on a chick. But I'm saying we all have that, right? Like in street related workshops, people constantly ask about how to do it, how to, you know, methodology uh, do you hang out on a corner all the time or do you walk? Do you get in people's faces and, and be confrontational or are you hanging back and trying to be invisible? Blah, blah, blah. And everybody thinks there's some other way that someone does it that they need to change over to do. And that's how they'll get good pictures. And I say, who are you? What's your uh, temperament? You know, if you have the temperament of a Bruce Gildon and you like to just get out there and swagger. Okay. So be that. But if you're the kind of person who's really a little more timid, it's great to challenge yourself to go beyond inhibitions. But, you know, recognize that you bring something You're going to approach
0: people own. differently and they're going to react to you
1: differently and your pictures are going to look different. Different, yeah, right. Yeah. And not necessarily worse, not necessarily better. I mean, I know genius photographers who are never even detected when they're photographing and others who sometimes are and some who are constantly visible and, and noticed. And all their pictures are good, and they're all really different, and they all relate to that person who takes the picture. You know, I'm asked constantly about taking pictures of people without being detected, because with with the assumption that the reason you would do that is to keep people from being angry at you. (laughs) And the fact is, while that's really helpful to your psyche and your, you know, getting through your day, the reason I started working to get good at not being uh, detected was because I didn't want people to change what they were doing. If they saw the camera, if they saw that I was sizing them up and trying to focus, they would... Change what they were doing. They they would uh, their behavior put changes. on their camera yeah. face yeah. or whatever. Even if they weren't angry, because that's the other thing is when people ask those questions, the assumption is that if someone detects you, they're always going to be angry. Not always. It's not always. absolutely not no. always. I mean, I've had people thank me and be very uh, excited about it, and then I've had other people just be curious, or right. uh, you know, or or worst of all, they just start posing you know they see the camera and they start throwing up peace signs and yeah. and and trying to look like they do in their selfies and and that's not what I wanted at all like i always wanted just that that slice of life where you don't sense the photographer's presence in the picture at all. And then it's so funny though, cause then every once in a while there'll be one where there is some reaction in the photo and it actually makes the photo instead of yep. kills it. That's super fascinating. <laughs> but uh, you know, basically as a, like my general default is I really like taking pictures that don't have any sort of uh, presence of myself in the reactions of people or, or yeah. the expressions well, I mean, well, the, of
0: people. The workshop sounds great. Um, and we'll, you know, I'll, I'll provide all the links to all your sites and social media when the, the episode comes out and, awesome. and, and. I wanted to thank you for coming in and giving me all your time. Thank you for having me. I could <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: I could talk to you forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll
0: do another episode down the road. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually been thinking about that, doing follow-up episodes with people. And so, you know, when you're you know, you're uh, you're done with grad school and you're out doing other things and thinking about your another book or another book comes out, we can
1: we can record again. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Ah, it's uh, a wonderful wonderful podcast you have. Well, thank, thank you. you.
0: <laughs> all right, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>